after the bulletin had been printed asking me if I would let you know something they're doing. So this should be in the bulletin, but it just didn't make it in time. So let me take this moment to tell you. They are conducting a free medical dental and vision clinic up in Delano, similar to what we did here in January. They're planning to do that on the 25th of June, which is a Sunday. The mayor of Delano apparently sponsored a 12,000 square foot building for them to use, and they are appealing for volunteers. Specifically, they need dentists, medical doctors, ophthalmologists, nurse, nurses, optometrists, dental hygienists, and anyone with a heart to serve, they can use them all. His wording, he says, this is our Macedonian call for help. So if you feel so inclined, um, come speak to me or, or even Brother Jesse, our first elder, knows how to get in touch with the, the saints up there. We'd be happy to connect you with them. And by the grace of God, the people in Delano will be blessed. <clears throat> okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, as we're about to open your word together, we pray that you would anoint us with your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom from on high, but also to prepare our minds and hearts to receive that wisdom. Bless us in the name of Jesus so that we may leave here more conformed to your image than we were when we arrived. And we thank you in the name of our Savior. Amen. Well, May God's richest blessings be upon you this fine Sabbath morning and throughout the day as we worship Him. I just love the Sabbath. People ask me, how you doing? I say, I'm always doing great on the Sabbath. <laughs> Let me get right to the point here today. As has been mentioned already, this message is about prayer. So pay attention because you don't pray like you ought to pray. And I'm fairly certain that you know it. None of us pray as we ought to pray. And I'm fairly certain that we all understand that to some degree. Now, I want to take a moment to acknowledge my appreciation for the emphasis on prayer that our senior pastoral family has brought to this congregation. Now, I have experienced great things in prayer and through prayer personally, and I am convinced really that the, that a primary root cause for pretty much all of our troubles is insufficient or improper prayer. And I, I believe that not because more prayer will make our troubles go away, but rather that more prayer connects us to God in such a way as to develop a character like the prophet Daniel's, wherein being fed to a den of hungry lions seems like not such a big problem after all. So I really think that prayer is the answer. I mean, how much of what we struggle with is objectively as hard as we esteem it to be versus how much of what we struggle with is simply hard because of our outlook and demeanor towards that situation. Would it not be great to have God's outlook and demeanor towards a situation we're struggling with? Would our troubles not seem so much smaller if, if that were the case? But you see, we only develop an outlook and a demeanor like God's through prayer. Not even Bible study all by itself will do that because Bible study puts ideas in our brain, but prayer puts ideas in our heart. Right? And so thank you. I know you guys are not here, but thank you, Daniel and Lana Petch, 
for your ministries for, with, and about prayer. And may the Holy Spirit continue to lead all of us into a deeper prayer pattern and dependence upon prayer so that we may realize actual victories in our lives and bring glory to God in the process. Amen? Okay. So this morning, I want to give you an idea that I hope will strengthen your prayer experience um, and, and give you perhaps a holy boldness before God. Today we're going to learn some Greek. Now Greek is a precise and complex language that behaves very differently than our lazy language of English. Our language is so vague that we have to specify sometimes whether we are speaking in the singular or the plural when we use the common word you, which is not in and of itself singular or plural, it's both. Our verbs and nouns in English are genderless, often resulting in confusion as to which noun in a sentence is the proper one referring to the following verb. Our suffix ing, we're doing something. That suffix does not specify whether something is happening in the present temporary sense or in the present continuous sense. There's a lot of vagueness in our language, but Greek has none of those points of confusion. Greek is so massively complex that a single verb could have upwards of 96 different conjugations, depending on who is doing it, where, when, for how long, with what intensity, etc., etc., etc. It's a hard language. And it's especially hard when our minds are conditioned to the lazy, often formless language of English. But the difficulty of the Greek also brings clarity if you sit down to learn how it works. And today, I would like to bring some of that clarity to the Lord's Prayer. Now, we have recently adopted the Lord's Prayer into our worship service. Understandably for some, not excluding myself, this has been a controversial decision. Now, in this room, we all hail from different backgrounds, and we have our own meanings and baggages attached to this very common prayer. I personally used to recite this prayer, followed by ten Hail Marys, and then another one that I don't even remember anymore, every morning at school when we would pray the rosary in unison over the PA system, as I grew up in a Catholic school. I would recite that prayer again in unison every single Sunday at church, often wondering why only the priest got to say the very end part where the kingdom and the power and the glory is God's forever and ever. Only he got to say that. A few years ago, I recoiled at the TV miniseries The Bible. I don't know if you watched that. But there was a miniseries that attempted to bring the Bible onto the small screen, and they represented the day of Pentecost— when the disciples were all in one accord with each other, according to the Scripture, it represented them being in one accord by unitedly and repeatedly chanting the Lord's Prayer as the Spirit descended upon them. That sat wrong with me. And so I get it. My, that's my point, is I understand that there can be some controversy attached to this prayer. And to me, there are times when the prayer can feel very Catholic because of my background in the Catholic Church. And I recall even being surprised the very first time that I heard it in an Adventist worship service back up north a few years ago. 
But over the years, as I have matured in the faith, I have come to understand and realize that the Lord's Prayer also brings blessings if we let it. And how could it not? It is immediately prefaced in the Scriptures by Jesus saying, In this manner, therefore, pray. After several verses of what not to do, he says, All right, so therefore, in this manner, now pray. How could it not bring blessings if Jesus tells us to pray that way? And so I've come to understand that the problem is not in the prayer. Of course not. But rather in our tendency to be mindless in our use of the prayer. To just say it because we know it by heart. So today, let's be mindful in our use of it, church. Let's switch gears. And let's start with this very careful observation. Have you noticed how succinct the prayer is? A lot of times we don't want to say it over and over because Jesus tells us not to repeat things vainly and use many words. But the prayer is very succinct. For example, if someone among us needs a job, we gather around that poor brother and we take turns praying, Oh Lord, our great and mighty awesome God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and for whom no expense is too great. We need your help for our brother who has recently lost his job. We ask in the name of Jesus that you provide him with stable work with which to support his family. And that you do so soon that he may experience the peace that you have promised him. Again, oh Lord, we humbly ask you to hear this prayer and grant this brother a job in Jesus' name. Amen. But Jesus comes along and says, In this manner, therefore, pray. Give us today our daily bread. That's succinct. So in, in our use of the Lord's Prayer, are we really in violation of Christ's warning against using many words? I mean, where were the many words in that example that I just gave you? Was it in the Lord's Prayer or in our prayer? The Lord is very succinct. Do you see what I'm saying? Perhaps there is more here to the Lord's Prayer than our passive understanding usually allows us to consider. So let's engage our minds today and use the prayer correctly. Let's figure out why Jesus says, in this manner, therefore, pray. All right, we'll start with a question. Church, is seven an important number to God? Yes, it is. Praise the Lord. Well, guess what? There are seven verbs in the Lord's Prayer. You think that's a coincidence? Number one, hallowed be thy name. Number two, thy kingdom come. Number three, thy will be done. Number four, give us our daily bread. Number five, forgive our debts as we forgive others. Number six, lead us not into temptation. Number seven, deliver us from evil. And then following that is the statement that the kingdom is God's, right? So seven is the number of perfection. Something about this prayer is perfect. Well, the first three verbs in the list have to do with God. The final four verbs in the list have to do with us. That is approximately the same ratio of God to man that we see in the Ten Commandments. Four of which belong to God, six of which belong to us. It's approximately the same percentage. 
And that's actually not the only similarity to the Ten Commandments either. And that kind of brings us to the main point for this morning. All but one of these seven verbs are written in the imperative sense in Greek. In other words, they are commands, but not commands from God to us, like in the Ten Commandments. Rather, they are commands from us to God in prayer. Now, hold your tomatoes and your stones. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> yeah. I know that God is sovereign and is not obligated to us. I know that he is not dependent upon us, and I know not to be presumptuous before God. So don't hear that. Nevertheless, the reality is that these verbs are conjugated in the Greek as telling God what to do, not asking. It's a very different approach. And Jesus says, pray in that manner. Now, many of us may not be familiar with or comfortable with prayers like that, but the principle is not actually unparalleled in the Bible. See, for example, Deuteronomy 6.16 tells us, do not test God. And then Jesus reaffirms that in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And despite that, we find an exception in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. God says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this. That's New King James, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Okay, so the New King James says to try God. The New International Version says, test me now in this. The King James says, prove me now. In this. And so God gives us here a circumstance wherein it is acceptable to test God. It is not presumptuous to do so because He told us to do it. It's actually obedient to test God in the manner described in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. And similarly, it is obedient to pray the Lord's Prayer in the imperative sense to command God about the things that Jesus outlines. So let's take a, look, or a closer look at this prayer that is filled with imperative verbs. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Hallowed be your name, or hallowed be thy name. To hallow is an old English word that we don't use very much. It can be an adjective, something is hallowed, or it can be a verb, to hallow something. Here in the Greek, it is a verb written in the imperative sense. See, to make holy, to venerate. This is a, a, a condition in which the holiness and veneration is being caused to happen. So it's a verb in the imperative sense. We're saying, we're, don't just allow your name to be hallowed, God, but hallow it. You do it. Cause it to become hallowed. So in this prayer, we are not expressing our desire that God would be considered more holy in our world. 
Rather, we are telling God to make His name more holy in our world. Can you and I do that? Only God can do that. Purify your name, God. Our Father who is in heaven, purify your name among us. Sanctify it in my heart so I may see the beauty of your holiness. And not in my heart only, for did you notice that the Lord's prayer is entirely in the plural? Our Father. How many of us singularize this prayer? My Father, give me everything. Don't be so selfish, church. Someone out there needs more than you. Yeah? So in the plural sense, don't just do this to my heart, but the hearts of all the people, all of your people, all the people of earth. Hallowed be thy name, God. Purify your name. And yet we know that there's going to be a rebellion on this earth right up until the moment that Jesus appears. Amen? So as we are telling God to hallow his name on the earth, what we are really saying is, your kingdom come. Bring that moment when all the earth can hallow your name. Your kingdom. And once again, imperatively we say this. To come or go. To bring We are not telling God how much we want Jesus to come. You see? We are commanding God to keep the promise that He made to us that He will come again to receive us unto Himself so that where He is there we may be also. You promised that, God. You promised it. Therefore, Your kingdom come. Let us be Adventists and tell God to bring His kingdom as He promised to do. We pray unitedly, in Jesus' name, God, bring Your kingdom to us. We desire it. And when that happens, we know that Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Church, here's a key to victory. Did you know that? We talk about victory a lot in this church. This is a key. You know all that time that you spend thinking about yourself? Come on, don't lie. <laughs> you know all those unhealthy foods that you eat when you know you shouldn't? You know those internet arguments that you join or sometimes start, have mercy? You know those impure thoughts that you have of lust or of anger? Hey, you know that secret sin that you never talk about because what would the church think of you? Those things are not God's will for you. You know that, right? And so when we pray in the imperative sense, once again, to cause to be, to bring into being, when we pray that God's will be done on earth the way that it is in heaven, that is a prayer for victory. God, cause your will to be done on earth. Implement your will in my life, in my heart. Take over this situation and conform it to your holy will for us. Why don't we pray this, church? Why don't each one of us pray this every day? 
I think it's because a lot of us like our own will just fine. It's more fun to do all these naughty things, isn't it? And often we'll even convince ourselves that we are correct in doing these various things. And so, you know, we don't really want God's will to be done on earth because we know that we would have to change if it was. And so a lot of us don't pray this. But do you want to witness God's power right in front of your eyes? Miraculous, supernatural power? Then let's pray. Your will be done. Impose your will upon us, the church, and upon the earth. Overrule us from on high and show us what your will really looks like, God. Have mercy. Do any of us really know what God's will looks like in heaven? And so, that's God's portion of the Lord's Prayer. And it's actually a narrative of sorts. We're saying, purify your name as you bring your kingdom to us and impose your will on the entire earth. It's really one thought. Do these things, God. What an astounding prayer that is. I hope it takes your breath away a little bit. So then the prayer turns its attention to us, and we run into four more verbs. But interestingly, only three of the next four verbs are imperatively conjugated. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. And this is imperative again. Ditto me. It is to give to bestow, to bring forth, to grant, to minister, the act of actively giving, cause to these things to happen. So in other words, God, we are not asking for our daily bread. You promised to care for our needs. You promised in Malachi 3.10, which we've seen already. You promised in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. You promised in Isaiah 33, 16, the follower of God will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. He promised in Psalm 37, 25, the psalmist says, I have been young and now am old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging bread. We acknowledge these promises when we together sing our doxology each week. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We acknowledge all of this, and Christ instructs us to command that God keep those promises to us because God doesn't break promises. Give us today our daily bread. We need things today, God. We acknowledge that all good things come from you. You promised to fulfill our needs. Therefore, keep your promise and provide our needs today. This too is liberating, church. Because if God does not provide what you want, that means God says you don't need it. Aha! <laughs> If you needed it, God would provide it. He promised. 
So many of us run into problems because we confuse our wants with our needs. I want this house. I want this relationship. I want this job. I want this situation. Give me today my daily dessert. Give me today what I really want, God. <laughs> but that's not how the prayer goes, is it? Give us, plural again, all of us. How dare we use this for our own personal gain? Give us our daily bread. Give us what we need today. And change our hearts away from that which you do not deem necessary for us, O oh God. You promised to do this. The next verb appears two times. Both times it is conjugated the exact same way. And as we're going to see, that is significant. Verse 12 says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so God has imperatively covenanted himself to forgive our sins when we confess them. He promised as much in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, therefore, we are not being presumptuous to command God to forgive our debts or sins or trespasses, depending on the translation, right? God already promised that's exactly what he would do. However, there are conditions attached. And the Lord's Prayer takes those conditions into account with the second use of that verb, forgive. We are commanding God to forgive our sins in like manner as we are commanded to forgive each other. Both times they are commands. And so, forgiveness is not optional for a Christian. Sometimes we pretend like it is, don't we? And then we hold grudges. And over time we convince ourselves why it's okay to not extend forgiveness to a person. Or limited forgiveness only. Or forgiveness with a catch, you know? Forgiveness if I feel like it. And yet what we are telling God, what we are commanding God here, is to forgive us in proportion to how we forgive others. And so if we are a forgiveness with a catch kind of a Christian, then we are commanding God to forgive us with a catch. Forgiveness with strings attached. Forgiveness under certain conditions only. Partially, perhaps, but not entirely. Is that really what we want, church? Or do we want total forgiveness of sin? Complete forgiveness. And yet, how many grudges represented in this room right now stretch back decades? Decades. Have mercy, church. Isn't it easier just to forgive each other? Of course it is. As long as the Holy Spirit dwells within us, of course it is. Our natural carnal hearts find this task impossible. That's why we hold grudges. <laughs> we are dependent upon God working in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure, as it says in Philippians 2.13. We need God in us. 
in order to be godly toward each other. How can I give out something I haven't received, right? And so with all of this in mind, we pray in the manner that Jesus taught by saying, forgive our sins, Lord, because you promised to. We have nothing to bring to you, nothing which, with which to earn our purchase or our pardon, but to you belong goodness and righteousness and mercy and forgiveness. So forgive us according to your promises and fulfill in us the gospel experience that empowers us by your grace to extend that same forgiveness to each other. Or more simply put, cause us to forgive each other out of the abundant gratitude from receiving your forgiveness for ourselves. And do not forgive me if I refuse to forgive my enemies by your grace. That's a powerful prayer, isn't it? That's solemn. I mean, that's, that's downright heavy. Ask yourself if your grudge is worth it. Next is verse 13. Do not lead us into temptation. Ooh, would that not be a great command to give to God? Ha! God, don't let me be tempted. In the name of Jesus, amen. <laughs> but unfortunately, this is a non-imperative verb. This is the only one in the whole prayer that is not conjugated imperatively. We live in a world of constant temptation. To command God to lead us away from temptation is to command God to kill us. That's the only way it can happen. My death is the only remedy for temptation in this world. Even Jesus was tempted. Temptation is ubiquitous in this world. And so, Jesus taught us this verb as a request, not a command. Temptation will not stop being a problem until we are in the kingdom. Sorry. We have to use God's grace to overcome the sin. Good luck with the temptation. You let me know how you do. But the good news is, we don't get stuck here because the good news is we end the prayer, deliver us from the evil one, and that is, once again, imperative again. That is, rescue me from the evil one, Father. Come and take him away from me. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen? The devil is a liar and a thief. Take him away from me and take me away from him. His temptations may assail me until the day that I die or the day that you return, but, oh God, deliver me from his wickedness, I pray. By the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, I command victory over the evil one because Jesus told me to. Hallelujah. Now, does that change our perspective on the Lord's Prayer a little bit? Consider now that each of the concerns in the prayer, which are directed at us, the, the last four-sevenths of the prayer, are actually expressions of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. 
right? We'll connect the whole prayer to itself now. God wills to provide for his children. God wills to forgive sin. I mean, enough to willingly die a horrible death on a tree. That's how much he wills to forgive sin. And he wills that we forgive each other in like manner. He wills that we desire freedom from temptation in this fallen world, even if we can't actually realize that 100%. But we should desire to be free from temptation. And he wills to be our protector from the evil one. All of these things are expressions of God's will. So when we pray, thy will be done, these are the things that God wills. He promised us, and he taught us to claim those promises in an imperative sense. Now, consider the prayer as a whole, all seven verbs. Realize that it's all one thought, direct from the mind of God. Father in heaven, purify your name throughout mankind. Bring your kingdom so as to impose your will on the earth as it is done in heaven above manifesting in our well-being, forgiveness, harmony, contentment, and protection, because yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. There it is. That's powerful, and I hope you'll agree with that. And so, friends, to conclude, I hope that you will see that this is actually the perfect little prayer, which is why Christ taught it to us. He does not say, with these exact words, pray. What he says is, in this manner, therefore, pray. With these ideas, pray. With these intentions toward God, pray. And I will testify to you that individual prayer does not come very easily to me. It is not one of my spiritual gifts. My mind is more like a Picasso than a Rembrandt. And so I I find my—thank you. I appreciate that. And so (laughs) I I find myself wandering easily in these kinds of situations. And so as this is something that I've been working on, I've found it helpful to include the Lord's Prayer in my time with God. Because this prayer is organized. It's succinct. It outlines God's priorities, and it guarantees results because it's full of promises. (laughs) God is not going to say no to this prayer. Now, it's not the only thing I pray. And when I do pray it, I rarely use the words as they're written in Matthew 6. I I pray it more like this sermon where we've been connecting to each one of the words, right? That's how I pray it. But I I use it as a template for me. It's like a a prayer roadmap, if you will, drawing my mind to the concerns which are at the top of God's priority list rather than my own priority list. Now, I still have a lot of work to do to learn how to pray better, as I imagine we all do. Amen? Amen. But the Lord's Prayer, in the manner that we have discussed today, has been a helpful tool to me so far to realize the character of a God who teaches us to command his promises through intimate prayer with him. Oh, friends, it's fun to serve a God like that. It's a joy to serve a God like that. What a joy to be a Christian. It is easy to fall in love with a God like that.
it's easy to give your life to that kind of a God. Amen? And to that end, I wonder, is the Holy Spirit instructing anyone today to give your life to Him right now? I don't get to come here terribly often these days, but when I do, there's always people I don't recognize here. I don't know your backgrounds. I don't know if you've said yes to Jesus or not. There's someone today who needs to say yes to Jesus for the first time or the first time again. If the Spirit's telling you to, what do you think is the right thing to do? Amen. Who wants to leave here changed today? Amen. Who wants to leave with the assurance of eternal life with Jesus, who taught us to pray so beautifully? Amen. Let's leave here with that assurance. And to that end, we are going to close with the Lord's Prayer in song.